We know that parents of children with a disability are more likely to experience mental health problems and we know that health professionals know that it's their responsibility. We can intervene at a number of levels to support parents' mental health, but we also know the issues are really complex. Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast, where we give you access to top academics and clinicians from around the world working in the area of cerebral palsy. We record live at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. In this episode, we hear from a selection of speakers talking about the mental health of parents and carers of children with cerebral palsy. From the Jack Brockoff Child Health and Wellbeing Program, we have Dr. Elise Davis, who is a Senior Research Fellow with the program, Dr. Kim Michelle Gilson, who is a Psychologist and Research Fellow with the program, and Joan Gaines, who is a Research Advisor with the program and mother of a son with cerebral palsy. We also hear from Dr. Helen Burke-Taylor, a Senior Lecturer in Occupational Therapy from Australian Catholic University. Let's first hear from Elise, who introduces the work being done within the CRE to support parents and carers. There were two things that we said that we do, and one was around collecting some more quantitative data on the mental health needs for parents and what mental health support they're accessing. But we also ultimately wanted to work towards developing, implementing, evaluating some kind of intervention or program to support parents' mental health. And when we talk about mental health, we're not just talking about mental illness, we're also looking at mental well-being. Here's Elise once again. So the World Health Organization's definition of mental health is that it's a state of well-being in which every individual realises his or her own potential, can cope with the normal stresses of life, can work productively and fruitfully, and can make a contribution to his or her community. We know that parents of children with a disability are more likely to experience mental health problems, and there's now quite a body of research around that. There's also a body of research demonstrating that Um, Parents are more likely to have physical health problems as well, such as, you know, fatigue and ulcers and back pain, a variety of things. And we know that physical health and mental health are so linked, so we're really talking about health and wellbeing generally. To give you an example of some Australian data on the mental health of parents, this is one of Helen Burke-Taylor's studies. Um, A study of 153 mothers of school-aged children with developmental disability. And she demonstrated that the mothers reported subjective mental health to standard deviations below other Australians. She also found that mothers were more likely to have poorer mental health if they also had a preschool-aged <coughs> child as well as their child with a disability, if they had more than one child with a disability, uh, and if they were a mother of a child with autism. In their research, our speakers have looked at ways to promote the mental health of parents and carers. Here's Kim Michelle Gilson talking about that research. And as Elise just highlighted, we know that parents of children with a disability, particularly mothers, have poorer mental health. Um, So we really wanted to know if they perceived an actual need for professional mental health support and if they actually accessed this mental health support. We also wanted to know what the barriers were and we wanted to know how mothers felt generally about receiving support from their child's health professionals. And finally, what are the views of health professionals as well in supporting mothers' mental health? Okay, so just to go over the mental health data to start with, and this really gives us a little bit of context for the later findings too. So in terms of depression, um, we found that 44% of mothers uh, had clinically significant depression. So what that means is they were 44% had a probable depressive disorder. 18% had severe depression scores. So 18% were at that really severe end. 
Similarly for anxiety, we found that 42% had clinically significant anxiety. So again, we're probably looking at an anxiety disorder in 42%. And 18% had severe anxiety. We also wanted to look at psychological distress, which is quite a general indicator um, of, of distress rather than focusing on just anxiety or depression. And we found 31% experienced or reported high distress and 17% were very, very high distress. So you can see there's about 17 to 18% were at that really severe range. Now, in terms of suicidality, and what I mean by that is any thoughts or plans or attempts to end one's life in the previous 12 months. We don't actually have very good data on that in Australia for mothers, um, but it's something that we thought was quite important if we were looking at mental health. And we found that 22% of mothers said that, they, that one of those things, so either an ideation, a plan or an attempt, was experienced in the previous 12 months. So any one of those behaviours. And in terms of focusing on just the suicide attempt only, 4%. Now, I'm not sure if anyone is familiar with the data in Australia for women. Um, the, late, the 2007 Mental Health and Wellbeing Survey actually reported figures that were quite a lot less than those that we found for mothers in our survey. So, so a suicide attempt, you're looking at less than 1% and certainly below 5% for suicidality. So the figures we got were quite alarming to us. And 22% reported current medication use for anxiety or depression. Okay, so now moving on to perceived need and access to support. So we found that 75% of the overall sample of mothers said that they perceived a need for professional mental health support in the previous 12 months. And 42% of that 75% did not actually access support. So despite perceiving a need, they didn't actually go on to access support. Now, in terms of those who experienced anxiety and depression, like I've just mentioned, so those 44%, we found that the perceived need for professional support was a lot higher, so you're looking at 91%. And the unmet need, so those who didn't access support, was about 52%, 48% in those with anxiety and depression, so a little bit higher than the overall sample, which we might expect. Um, we asked them about the professionals that they would access, so mainly this was a GP or a psychologist or a psychiatrist, which again we would expect. Um, the helpfulness of this support, so mothers reported 63% of this support was helpful. And finally, we wanted to understand how knowledgeable they were of mental health services, where to go, what in, in terms of if they were to experience a problem, and we found that 50% were knowledgeable, so that's quite a gap. So then we looked at the barriers to accessing support. So these are from mothers who said that they perceived a need for mental health support in the previous 12 months, but had not actually accessed it. And the reasons for that were my caring responsibilities made it hard to schedule. So around 45% reported that, which we might not be very surprised at at all. But the other three main barriers were, were quite surprising because these were more beliefs around support. So I didn't think my problem was severe or serious enough, 36%. I preferred to manage myself, around 31%. And I didn't think anything could help, so 28%. So that was quite insightful for us to understand why these mothers weren't actually accessing support and suggest the need for more education around when to recognise you need to seek help and what supports are available and how helpful they can actually be. 
Kim and her team also looked at when support was provided and when it was needed most. So you can see it was most important for them to receive mental health support at their child's diagnosis, but only 24% said that they had received that. You can see at the child's acute illness or medical intervention, 84% thought it was important, but only 22% had received it. And during key developmental stages, 77% felt that it was important and only 12% had received it. One key finding from the research was that there was no systematic program of care in place for mother's wellbeing. There were also a lot of barriers to supports being available or requested. Here's Joan Gaines talking about the opportunities and the barriers identified. One of the really key ones that came through that we were a bit surprised at is the need for parents to feel competent. That, you that parents reported that you need to be focused, you need to be professional, so that if you're a blubbering mess, it's not a good look to do that. Where it's something that came through a great deal was that parents wanted to look competent. They needed to feel that they were remaining in control and that they were a bit worried about looking weak to their professionals. So there's a lot of opportunities that we identified within the research that we did, that the role of the paediatrician in facilitating support that the paediatrician might be able to identify a need and aim me somewhere else. That was something that came through quite clearly as well. They know a lot about the system and what's available for the kids and the parents. However, these, weren't, these appointments with paediatricians weren't considered to be, by the parents, relevant to discussing in depth. The appointments the parents found were about the children. We looked at, well, what is happening there? Um, parents were saying, I get that you don't have the expertise or, or um, they don't really ask how are you or if they did ask, it was in a format that was just a passing comment of how are you feeling, what are you doing. What needs, they just need to have some practical help to do something and to be helpful. It's not a, making support isn't easy. Um, it, it's not a separate appointment. If we've got kids coming in and parents are sitting in the hospital, it's a golden opportunity to take mum and dad out and say, come on, let's just have a, a bit of a chat about what the issues are. Doing it in front of your children is really not a good thing. The gaps on how mothers are supported for their mental health, that there's quite a few barriers that stopping mothers from discussing their, health, their mental health. It's not as easy as asking, some with a framework of possible follow-up support and action. So what we're actually finding is that parents needed to be able to um, have somebody ask them and then refer them. They don't necessarily want to do it in the appointment, but they actually would like to be asked and then referred on to something more, or even come back and have another appointment. There's a key of preventable supports that were identified as are important for parents, as you saw in, the, saw in the statistics. And if we actually tapped into some of those, we could make a really big difference. The study also found that professionals are aware of the benefits of the parents' well-being. Uh, if parents are functioning well, it's going to make the professionals work with children so much better. So the professionals acknowledged that that was a really great idea. And they also, it was essential to have a really good understanding of maternal mental health, because in the vast majority of cases, if a mum doesn't have the mental well-being to drive an intervention, the child's prognosis isn't going to change. So our professionals are saying as well that this is a really important area we need to be working on. Now, there's some really great opportunities. There's a good, that people are in a really good position to be supporting mothers. 
They often the professionals are going out once a fortnight and talking and talking about their child. They've actually got some really good opportunities there. Both professionals and parents thought that were great opportunities. And it's broader than just having a psychologist appointments. Yes, there's mental health plans. We can send off parents to to psychologists. But in reality, it's something that parents need to be working on all the time for both their physical and their mental health, and that there were some opportunities where professionals were coming out. So, there are, there's some barriers. Professionals reported that there were some barriers. They could see that parents were struggling, but they felt they weren't qualified or have the strategies or the skills to be able to do it. Now, we saw that as a very important um, need and barrier that's come up that we really need to be working on. They're not knowing who to refer to, and I, there are a lot of services we can report to, but we need to get professionals knowing what those services are, and not finding that conversation easy. I mean, most professionals don't want to open the Pandora's box because the parent might just let it all out. Um, when they're, comf they're comfortable talking about what their expertise is, they're an occupational therapist, they're very comfortable talking about that, but talking about parents' mental health can be very difficult and a little bit awkward, but it's not that hard. Mm -hmm. Professionals were aware that, um, that parents had issues with time and childcare and finance, and there were, all those barriers were really quite difficult for parents, so professionals are very aware of that as well. It's seen, it was also seen that parents didn't prioritise their own mental health or acknowledge any mental health difficulties. Now, we weren't really very surprised about that. If you've got a child with some severe disabilities, you're focusing on your child. And you can't really look after your child really well unless you have your own good mental health. Now, we found that the implications of that was that there needs to be a more systematic process to ensure that parents are supported from the beginning, that professionals feel equipped to support those parents, and that we promote parental mental health, and it needs to be a priority at an organisational level. And clearly they're saying they wish to be able to take charge, they want to be confident, they want to be seen as competent mothers, but they do need some help. Dr Helen Burke-Taylor is part of a program that works to address some of the issues raised in the study. Here's Helen outlining the program. Our program is the Healthy Mothers, Healthy Families program and together with my colleague Fiona Jane, who is a women's health general practitioner, specifically um, specialised, we present a full day workshop to mothers. So our program, and this is off the website because we do have a website to support the full day workshop because of course not every mother can get there. It's an evidence informed program following um, what was a needs analysis um, five or six or seven or eight years ago that I completed. And that was to look at, okay, what, what are the factors that are contributing to maternal stress? And so things that were identified from that study were interrupted sleep, the child's emotional well-being, unmet service needs, and a lack of time for the self to actually address your own health. So in our workshop, we do things like um, Fiona, who's the GP, will dismantle what's the difference between being stressed distressed and having signs of depression and anxiety. So it's really having that, that authority from a medical perspective to help mums to self-identify. And I think from listening to the, the research just presented then by Kim, self-identification and validation, this is something worth acting on and that you need to act on is really important. 
So just to give you a background to how we've been conducting these workshops, we've presented to, it's actually to over 200 now, because we just did one on the weekend in Albury, but we were presenting to group, <coughs> groups of mums from a community, usually one or two intervention centres or schools, because the mums are going to go back to their own community and that's really important that they go back and have support in their community. In the workshop, mums get a, a manual, a workbook with worksheets and there's in, there's... There are tasks they'll do on their own. There are tasks and discussions we'll have it at a round table and then the whole room. I'm going to present just qualitative findings today. I have lots of other data that I could present, but uh, this is what I'll do just for today. So these were semi-structured interviews with 19 women in their 30s and 40s. They all had a child with a significant disability that had high care needs. The diagnosis and the age of the child is irrelevant to us. And one thing we ask for the mums when they come in each day is to leave your child and your family at the door, which will usually make them laugh because it's actually not about their child's diagnosis at all. And the, and the research shows that extent of disability and type of disability won't relate to maternal mental health or, or levels of stress. So uh, that's our strategy. The data management and analysis was thematic analysis. Interviews were transcribed verbatim, conducted by someone um, outside of Fiona and I an independent person, and we analyse the text systematically, etc. Three researchers involved in the data analysis. It's always complicated to explain data, qualitative data uh, analysis. Overall, we had three themes, and I'm going to present those to you now. So changes for me. So mums really appreciated the validation that, that the additional care tasks and respons responsibilities associated with your child go above and beyond uh, what other women do for their children. And uh, some of the other findings and changes for me were deciding to identify and nurture positive relationships in mum's life because social support is associated with better men mental health. So we have um, Kate here talking about um, reconnecting with others. She'd been pushing people away and, and realising that she actually needed to facilitate and nurture th the relationships with positive people in her life. Rebecca talks about understanding that she doesn't need to do it all herself. She doesn't need to be um, overdoing it, that she, she would be able to call on other people. And then Anna talked about uh, prioritising herself and not feeling guilty about it. We have the burnt toast or the burnt chop syndrome for lots of these mums, which of course is if the piece of toast burns, who gets it? If the lamb chop burns, who gets it on their plate? So it's sort of using humour and having the room say, yes, we do that, and trying to flip that around and use that oxygen mask analogy that in order to care for your family and your child appropriately and manage all the difficult tasks that you have, oxygen mask on you first and then proceeding. So uh, following the workshops, other comments within the changes for me were um, just a positive experience, so uh, more energy and actually attending to physical wellbeing. So in the workshops, mums will write goals for what I'm going to do immediately, within a month and then within longer term. So an immediate goal may be just to start work, walking 30 minutes a day, six days a week. May be to socially connect with someone who's really enjoyable, whatever their particular goal may be. Uh, so feeling better, feeling energised, being more active, so taking that step that mums have a workbook to take away, they have the website to look at afterwards and they have their community of mums that they may have swapped emails and phone numbers with or that they've now identified someone else at their school who they can meet for a walk, not a coffee or a wine. So going to health services, so um, overtly encouraging help-seeking behaviours in our workshops and we have 
we have uh, measured all these sorts of factors with all the mums that have come, so we're writing that up at the moment. Uh, under the health services, Pia here had uh, a child with autism and another child, and for seven years she'd diligently taken them to the dentist every six months and hadn't been herself in seven years. So following the workshops and the prioritisation of self and go ahead and work out what you need, she, her immediate goal was to go to the dentist, which she did. Children and changes. There were changes in terms of the way women cared for their child, organised the services, just feeling more resilience. And some of this comes out of the validation when you dismantle the role of carer and extra caregiving responsibilities. It's quite a complex role. It's a very heavy-duty role. You know, we get them to write a semi-job description, more or less, about how complicated their role is, and that's empowering in itself. Helen also talked about the wisdom gained by parents involved in her program. So just, just understanding... Uh, the commonality of phases or, or um, parts of the journey that mothers describe that are common to many, many mothers. And it's not a grief cycle. It's actually um, a, it's a different cycle of phases that mums were familiar with. So just understanding that and feeling like I'm not cuckoo, I'm like everybody else, was empowering. So knowledge about women's health. Uh, what we, of course, do is because of the additional responsibilities and the reduced time that women have. We're trying to provide this in a, a day package with all the supports to do it from home. So um, knowledge about women's health that you may never ever read a women's health magazine because you're too busy or you may never go to your GP. So just just um, understand, understanding the other phases but also um, how you're looking after your health relates to those phases. Like if you're going through a transition phase or your child has high medical interactions at that point in time, you can't prioritise yourself. We've placed links on our website at crecp.org.au to the information about Helen's program and to the Carer Gateway. Which is a website that's been launched by the federal government uh, six months ago. And in that website, it has all sorts of materials similar, similar to what I'm saying. It has healthy lifestyle information, but it also has uh, information about recognising yourself as a carer because there's some power in that. Women who have a child with a disability don't like the term carer. One of the things we do is we talk about, well, what does that mean and what is the uh, worth in recognising that? So it, it actually has the, that in this site. But the site is a navigation portal. So if you self-identify, you read all the mental um, health stuff and then you can go to a section for service finding and you can put in your postcode. You can get local counselling services. You can even get advice for home modifications in this site. So it's Care Gateway. If you just Google that, you'll find that. And Elise gives an excellent summary of what we know and what we can do about it. We know that parental mental health is everyone's responsibility and we know that health professionals know that it's their responsibility. Um, we can intervene at a number of levels to support parents' mental health, but we also know the issues are really complex and I think particularly some of the quotes that Joan was talking about just kind of highlight that complexity. Um, and so what we're working to do now is work in partnership with parents to develop some solutions and, and um, things that are feasible both for parents and within the health sector. So what we're currently doing over the next 12 months, um, we received in partnership with CalPARA and Early Intervention Services, which is an early intervention service in Greensboro, um, we received funding from Ian Potter to develop a program uh, to build the capacity of health professionals to support parents' mental health. So uh, we're working to develop the program, look at the feasibility, effectiveness and the costs of the program, 
We've applied for further funding to try and expand it to a few more service providers, so we're still waiting to see whether that will be happen, whether that will happen. But I think a challenge for us is working out how a program like this and Healthy Mothers, Healthy Families, how something like this is going to be sustainable and work with NDIS. That's something that we're grappling with. And I just wanted to really highlight that this is, you know, particularly for this capacity building program, it's not about identifying or treating mental health problems, and we're not expecting um, all health professionals to have the skills of psychologists, but it's about, you know, working in partnership with parents to support their mental health, being aware of how a parent is coping, acknowledging, validating the feelings that parents are having, being able to have those conversations, feeling confident to have those conversations with parents, knowing the referral pathways, and it's about staff being able to do that and know that they'll be supported within their organisation to do that as well. And, you know, we acknowledge that a lot of health professionals are doing this and a whole lot more, but it's about having a consistent approach within a whole organisation. Thank you for listening to the Centre of Research Excellence and Cerebral Palsy podcast. If you'd like to keep listening to our podcast, subscribe to this series in your favourite podcast app or keep an eye on our website, crecp.org.au. Next time on the CRECP podcast, early communication in children with cerebral palsy. Trixie Studio.